0: There was a young maiden who lived by the shore Let the wind blow high, blow low. No one could she find to comfort her mind As she sat all alone on the shore She sat all alone As a sea captain who sailed on the sea at the wind, I blow. High, blow low. I'll die I'll just die. that captain did cry. If I can't have that maid on the shore, if I can't have that maid on the shore.
1: These are the first lines from the ballad, The Maid on the Shore performed here by the John Renborn Band. It sounds almost like the beginning of a love story. A lonely maid, a dashing captain. I can think of countless ballads that start with a similar premise. The story practically writes itself. But this ballad is not a love song. There's something decidedly more sinister at work here. But who is the sinister agent? Is it the sea captain, spotting a soul woman singing on the rocky coasts of his passage? Or is it the maid coaxing the sailors into her trap? Well, I suppose that depends on who you ask. Welcome to Of Song and Bone, a podcast exploring ancestral arts and people's history through song, story, and poetry. I'm your host, Fern Maddy, Recording from unceded Abenaki territory in Indakana, Turtle Island. In this episode, I'll be exploring ballads about sirens, mermaids, and other seemingly sinister water spirits. What lessons do these ballads offer about the sacred ecology of water, about the liminality of sea travel, and about the power and anger of women's voices? Let's dive in. 2,500 years ago, the Greek poet Homer or whatever combination of people created Homer's poems, they spoke about the sirens, half-human, dangerously beautiful, feminized creatures whose songs were the source of madness and destruction for the men aboard passing ships. Modern imaginations often interpret them as a sort of mermaid, but these women were actually half-bird, embodying a different sort of sea creature, those waterfowl stranded out on the lonely rocks and desolate islands of the Aegean Sea. However, many of their characteristics are very similar to later legends of the mermaid, a dangerous, beautiful creature of the places in between, with a powerful voice and a sometimes deadly lesson for passing men. As usual, we will be generally looking at folklore from England, Ireland, Scotland, and the Scandinavian world. The specific origin of the Maid on the Shore is a little hard to pin down. It is not in Child's Index of English and Scottish ballads compiled in the 19th century, but it can be found in a book of ballads from Newfoundland in the 1930s. It was also recorded in the Irish counties of Antrim and Cork in the 1950s. It's hard to know how the ballad has traveled. Was it coined in Ireland and spread to Newfoundland, or vice versa? But like most folk ballads, its elements are rooted in long-standing folklore and motifs. By exploring the interrelated ballads from the English and Scottish tradition, we can illuminate more about the story.
0: The captain had silver, the captain had gold The captain had costly wear. All this he would give to his jolly ship's crew to bring
1: The Dangerous Mermaid features most prominently in the English ballad called, conveniently, The Mermaid. This is Child 289. In this ballad, a ship full of sailors sees a mermaid on a rock. She gives them an ill warning, delivered with a sort of cheerful glee at the prospect of their doom. The men then mourn their fate as the ship sinks into the storm. A Mermaid also features in the ballad Sir Patrick Spends, Child Ballad 58. This ballad tells a story of the doomed voyage of Sir Patrick Spens and the king's lords when they sail across the North Sea to retrieve the king's new bride from Norway. In some versions, a cabin boy, when scouting for dry land, sees instead a maiden gay with a comb and a glass in her hand. The mermaid then gives her warning. In some versions, her warnings are explicitly dire. "'Here's to your health, my merry young men, for you'll never see dry land.' In other versions, she speaks more hopefully. Cheer up your hearts, my mariners all. You are not very far from the land. However, these hopeful missives are clearly interpreted by the sailors as disingenuous or almost mocking. They may be close to the land, but they will never see it. In these ballads, the mermaid is not depicted as singing, but her voice still holds power. Her voice is prophecy, regardless of what she says. It is in her voice that the sailor's doom lays.
0: Then slowly, slowly she came upon board. The captain Gavarchiro he seated her down in the cabin below. Adieu to all sorrow and. She seated herself in the bow of the ship. She sang so long and sweet, oh. She sang so sweet, gentle, and complete. She sang all the seamen to sleep. She
1: sang all the seamen to sleep. I love this part of the song. When she outsmarts the men on the ship, when she slings them to sleep. But who is this maid? Is she truly a siren or a mermaid? It's hard to say. There's no specific reference in the ballad to her being a supernatural being. For all we know, she could simply be a regular girl with an excellent singing voice. But if we read between the lines, her connection to the supernatural becomes clear. There's a refrain that echoes in the first two stanzas of the song. Maybe you remember it. Let the wind blow high, blow low, oh. This is very similar to the refrain that we can see in a Swedish ballad about a mermaid. That refrain goes, blows cold, cold weather from the sea. In the English mermaid ballad, which I mentioned above, the refrain goes, while the raging seas did roar and the stormy winds did blow. The presence of the stormy weather and the rough sea, in connection with the woman, alone and unnamed, immediately point to her power. She is a liminal figure, not the woman left at home, nor the woman waiting on the other side. The place she is found is not England or Scotland or France. It is just an in-between place, somewhere on the way from here to there. She does not belong to a people or a family, This is notable. In most of the ballads, human women have a brother, a mother, a father, someone who impacts their story. But this woman, she is her own. dangerous water spirit is not always associated with wild and stormy seas. Sometimes these water sprites inhabit springs, streams, and wells. There is often a relationship between the spirit and a man, which turns sour when the man betrays her, or otherwise acts without honor. This story plays out in the ballad Clerk Colville, also called Clark Colvin. It's a bit tricky. Child 42. In this ballad, Clark is a newly married man, but he apparently has a long standing relationship with the spirit or sprite of a local spring. His new wife implores him to never go to visit this spring again. Presumably, she knows or suspects the truth. In some versions, it's the wall of stream he must not approach, in others, it's the wells of slain. Of course, he goes anyway and meets with the water woman. In one version, she is specifically named as a mermaid, despite belonging to a freshwater source rather than the sea. Forgetting his wife, Clark is taken up with the beauty of the mermaid again, and perhaps with some other things, and starts to experience a grave headache. He asks for help from the mermaid, and she cuts a strip from her sark, her linen gown, and tells him to tie it around his head. Unfortunately, this only makes the pain worse, And as he realizes his mistake, he tries to kill the mermaid with his sword, only to watch her transform entirely into a fish and vanish into the stream. Clark Colville then returns home to die from his ill-won luck. In one version, the mermaid laughs merrily at his pain and tells him, it will win on until he's dead, which is just a nice touch. In the notes related to the Clark Colville ballad, Childs also recounts the story of Peter Daimringer, the Knight of Stauffenberg, from a German poem circa 1300. In this story, Peter has a long-standing relationship with a fairy spirit, a woman who loves him and blesses him with good fortune and prosperity wherever he goes. But as a popular and renowned knight, he is increasingly pressured to take a human wife, and so in the end must reveal the truth of his fairy wife and in doing so betray her. This ends, of course, with his own destruction. Childs notes that although it's not explicit in the poem, common folklore around the story of Stauffenberg describe his consort as a murphy, a sea fairy, or a water nymph, and that he first meets with the spirit at a stream or a brook and is later drowned in it on the eve of his wedding to a human woman. Childs has a firm interpretation of the relationship between the man and the water spirit. He states it thus. Clerk Colville is not, as his representative is or may be in other ballads, the guiltless and guileless object of love or envy from the water sprite. His relations with the mermaid began before his marriage to his lady gay, and his death is the natural penalty of his desertion of the water nymph. For no point is better established than the fatal consequences of inconstancy in such actions. This is part of a fascinating pattern that's at work in the mermaid ballads. As I mentioned above, the English ballad, called The Mermaid, starts with a dire warning from the water spirit. The men will never see the dry land, which is just out of reach. But directly after this prophecy, each man speaks up to mention the woman waiting for him at home. The captain grieves for his wife in Plymouth, the first mate for the widow he will leave in Portsmouth, The boatswain speaks of his woman in Exeter, and a little cabin boy speaks up in sorrow for his mother, for he is yet unmarried. All these women are spoken of as the ship heads to its doom, and the mermaid, the sea woman, claims the sailors for her own. I'm inclined to see the mermaid and the human woman, not as simple enemies, but as symbolic foils, two sides of the same relationship. This foiling can be interpreted in so many different ways, ecological, mythological, psychological, the mermaids can be seen as nature spirits, their anger and destruction a form of revenge for exploitation and abuse of the earth and the waters. The replacement of the water bride with the human bride tells an old story about man's neglect of the sacred contract with the more than human world. And yet the mermaids do not belong solely to the other world, they are half human And so the pain and the rage of human women play out through their stories as well. Within their bodies, it's all the same thing. I always like to imagine what women 200, 300, or more years ago might have thought and felt listening to these ballads. I think of the women who watched their husbands go out to sea, not knowing whether they would ever return. Perhaps there was grief in this, or sometimes relief at the thought of reprieve. Perhaps there was fear or suspicion that their husbands would not be faithful. Of course, such an action was not only cause for wounded pride or a grieved heart, but it could result in unfathomable torment. The experience of syphilis before the advent of antibiotics was truly a horror. The idea of another woman on a far distant shore causing temptation or spelling doom, the idea of that woman would have held a complex place in anyone's mind, I think a compatriot and a competitor, a victim and an enemy. Perhaps these women saw the mermaid as simply a villain, a scapegoat for the uncertainty and uncontrollability of the sea. But perhaps the mermaid could also play out some of their own fantasies, could express the the rage and the pain and the violence that they weren't able to. The mermaid, the siren, was not silenced. Her voice had the power to control, the will, and the fate of men. So it's easy to see these stories as misogynistic, as just one more example of men telling tales about evil women. But I see a huge power fantasy in these ballads, one that speaks to and for women and women alone. Nowhere is this better illustrated than in The Maid on the Shore. After the maid has sung the sailors to sleep, The ballad ends on a lovely note.
0: She partook of his silver, partook of his gold, partook of his costly wear. She took his broadsword to make her. Goodbye
1: I love this ending. Obviously it's just so badass, but there's more going on here too. There are some scholars who interpret this as more of a clever last ballad. A heroine extricates herself from a bad situation by means of wit and luck, and that's certainly a fine interpretation for what's going on here. But this stanza to me suggests that this isn't a girl who has just stumbled into bad luck. To me, this reads like an ongoing con, like she's done this before and she'll do it again. It's a con which takes advantage of men's tendency to transgress, to abuse, to step over the boundaries of honor and decency, to act violence upon women, those close to them and those they encounter as strangers in the wide world. This ballad turns the whole mermaid story on its head. It's this unique perspective which makes this ballad so dear to me. It's her story and her story alone. The mermaid, the siren, the maid on the shore. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I'm sorry it's taken me almost five months to put out a second episode. I promise I will try to be more timely with my third. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. What mermaid stories do you love? What other tales of evil women is it time for us to reclaim? You can find me at ofsongandbone.wordpress.com or at Instagram at Fernmaddy. The ballad in this episode was recorded by the John Renborn Group. The theme music was written and performed by me. You can find it on my record, North Branch River, on iTunes and Bandcamp. If you'd like to give an iTunes review for the podcast, that would be absolutely amazing. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Until next time, be safe and stay well.